This week on Your Western Context, the Liberals' new Online Harms Act includes heavy punishments. Alberta's 2024 budget contains surprises, and the new Pharmacare plan covers very little medications. Also new documents reveal more on the Winnipeg lab scientist firings. This is Western Context, episode 359, recorded Saturday, March 2nd, 2024, Phony Pharmacare. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Western Context. Patrick and myself are here for the first episode of March. Would you have it, believe it or not, we're already heading into month three of 2024. And we got got an interesting batch of news to summarize this week with, of course, uh, a a bit of a discussion into uh, some of the news we talked about last week. But, of course, new news this week that is just managing to bubble up to the surface. Yes, indeed, and certainly some... Uh, stories that we've seen uh, pop up over the week have needed a lot of clarification as to what's actually going on and how it matters to Canadians because the media really hasn't done a really stellar job of explaining exactly what's been going on, even though that's literally their job to do so. Yeah, that's right. And of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention, of course, the passing of former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. And in in our views and our assessment as we were looking through that in the stories this week, that has been getting its fair amount of coverage in the media without without too much uh, sensationalism or bias associated with it. So we're not going to be looking into that directly on the podcast. But of course, we did we did want to acknowledge that before we be, before we begin this week and. Of course, if uh, folks want to follow along with the show, we have full show notes available at westerncontext.ca. You can uh, follow along there. And in in doing this show each and every week, our goal is to remove that bias and sensationalism and hopefully provide all the information and context necessary to you, to listeners, to put yourself on the right side of the news. And we're moving on this week, or rather we're starting off this week with a bit of a surprise coming out of the federal government. Yes, and the Liberal government has introduced what they refer to as the Online Harms Act. Now, in other words, this is their bill, which aims to curb what they call online hate. And the plan includes some controversial details and punishments that many media establishments are not really reporting on. Now, the Online Hate Bill introduces some very stiff penalties, which include hefty fines for online speech and stringent punishments, including up to life imprisonment. For hate crimes. Yes, you heard that right. A government that has struggled to even get murderers, organized criminals, and drug traffickers locked up is introducing a bill to life in prison anyone convicted of online hate. Now, among the categories of harmful content identified in the act are materials that incite violent extremism or terrorism, promote violence, especially against children, or formate hatred. Now, The bill will also include amendments to the criminal code aimed at addressing hate crimes more effectively. And these amendments include the introduction of a standalone hate crime offense applicable across all criminal offenses with penalties extending up to life imprisonment. Now, maximum punishments for existing hate propaganda offenses are also set to be increased substantially. Now, the Online Harms Act was tabled by Liberal Minister of Justice Arif Virani in the House of Commons earlier this week, and we'll get back to Virani a little bit later. 
Now, a technical briefing describing the act goes into a bit more detail as to what it actually includes. And it says, quote, new standalone hate crime offense that would apply to every offense in the criminal code and in any other act of parliament, allowing penalties up to life imprisonment to denounce and deter this hateful conduct as a crime in itself. Now, the bill would also raise the, quote, maximum punishments for the four hate propaganda offenses from five years to life imprisonment for advocating genocide and from two years to five years for the others when persecuted by way of indictment. Now, also, the bill would add a definition of hatred based on the past decision of the Supreme Court of Canada to the criminal code. Now, the text of the bill defines that content that foments hatred as any, quote, content that expresses detestation or vilification of an individual or group of individuals on the basis of a prohibited ground of discrimination within the meaning of the Canadian Human Rights Act, and that, given the context in which it is communicated, is likely to foment detestation or vilification of an individual or group of individuals on the basis of such a prohibited ground. So that's quite a bit of legalese to really just say that it is going to be content that expresses this detestation or vilification of a protected group under the Canadian Human Rights Act, which could be someone based on their gender, their race, or any other uh, characteristics that take uh, take up a person's identity. Now, this uh, bill also adds that for greater certainty and for the purposes of the definition, content that foments hatred and content uh, that does not express detestation or vilification solely b- because it expresses disdain or dislike or it discredits, humiliates, hurts, or offends. Now, to address such concerns about the wording of the bill, Verani has said that the government is seeking to clarify the definition of hatred to reflect Supreme Court rulings on the matter. It will be newly defined as the, quote, emotion that involves detestation or vilification that is stronger than dislike or disdain. And the bill also says that a statement that discredits, humiliates, hurts, or offends would not meet the bar to be considered promoting or inciting hatred. So that's a lot of words to say that the scope is actually quite broad and up to a lot of interpretation as to what the government actually believes what detestation and vilification actually is. Because, of course, there is uh, a lot out there, a lot of hate speech out there that discredits or humiliates or hurts that could be considered hatred, but also in other ways could not be considered hatred. So who actually will decide what is a crime or not? Well, that'll be up to the Canadian Human Rights Commission. Now, anyone will be able to file complaints against others for posting hate speech online that is discriminatory against the protected categories such as gender, race, disability, and other things. Now, amendments to the Canadian Human Rights Act will let anybody file complaints against people posting so-called hate speech with the Canadian Human Rights Commission. And if found guilty, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal can order those found to violate the government's definition of hatred with fines of up to $70,000 and also take down orders for the content. Now, according to text of the bill, the tribunal also has the power to order payments of up to 20000 for victims of so-called online hate, as well as in order to pay the government $50,000 if the member panel considers it appropriate. 
Now, in 2014, a similar provision under the act dealing with online hate messages was repealed by former Prime Minister Stephen Harper after it was found to have violated the freedom of expression rights of Canadians. So, in essence, this new bill will now be restoring that curbing of freedom of expression for Canadians, and it will be up to an unelected body to decide what is a violation of the act or not, or how big the fine will be. Now, as a result, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association has said that the act includes draconian penalties and says that higher sentences risk chilling free speech and also undermine the principalities or principles of proportionality and fairness within the legal system. Now, Noah Mendelssohn-Aviv, which is the Civil Liberties Association's executive director and general counsel, uh, said that in an interview that she says that she sees significant liberty issues throughout the bill and that there are problems, too, with the proposal for the Digital Safety Commission that would be given sweeping powers to regular social media giants. When it comes to hate speech offenses, she says that she's concerned because of the difficulty of distinguishing between political activism, passionate debate, and offensive speech. Now, one particular part of the bill that hasn't received much coverage is the ability for the act to allow the government to impose house arrest on someone who is feared to commit a hate crime in the future, even if they've not yet already done so. Now, this person could be made to wear an electronic tag if the attorney general requested, who is the justice minister, Arif Farani, um, or if ordered by a judge to remain at home, according to the bill. Now, Verani says that it's important that any peace bond be calibrated carefully, saying that it would have to meet a high threshold to apply. But he said that the new power, which would require the attorney general's approval as well as a judge's, could prove very, very important to restrain the behavior of someone with a track record of hateful behavior who may be targeting certain people or groups. Now, he said, if there is a genuine fear of an escalation, then an individual or group could come forward and seek a peace bond against them and to prevent them from doing certain things. Now, this peace bond, um, otherwise known as house arrest, uh, could have conditions that include not being close to a synagogue or a mosque. It could also lead to restrictions on Internet usage and behavior. And of the uh, preemptive house arrest, Varani says that this would help to de-radicalize people who are learning things online and acting out in the real world violently, sometimes fatally. And that's uh, you know, the amalgamation of the quotes that he's been saying about the uh, potential preemptive house arrests that this bill would allow his government to impose has made it to our quote of the week this week because it shows just how far the liberal government is willing to go to curb what it deems as hate speech and whether or not the Human Rights Commission or the Digital Safety Commission decide to do so, this is something that could be imposed on someone even if they haven't even enacted it out yet. And that's something that should be chilling for a lot of people, especially for those who have podcasts or in the media, because anything they say could be considered hate speech by the government if 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 it's found to uh, be included in what the act's definition of detestation and vilification actually is, which, as we've already said, is quite nebulous. Now, what's what's really interesting out of this is that Verani said that the hate crime offense would only be applied if coupled with another crime, and the life sentence would only apply in the most serious of cases, not, for example, for mischief to a garage door. 
And what he said is that what's really critical is that it gives the judge a wonderful range of sentences. This is not a mandatory minimum of life sentence. This is just a larger range, including what would be the maximum sentence. And yet experts, including internet law professor Michael Geist, have said that even a threat of a civil complaint, even with a lower burden of proof than a court of law, and a fine could have a chilling effect on freedom of expression. And Arif Verani should know well what draconian measures from a government can do for a person. Now, Verani was born in Kampala, Uganda, with Muslim roots from Gujarat, India, but was forced to flee with his family to Canada in the early 1970s when brutal dictator Idi Amin uh, ordered the expulsion of Uganda's Indian minority, giving them 90 days to leave the country or else. Now, over 50 years later, Virani is heading one of the most draconian legal bills seen in Canada, and he knows what it's like to be a victim of an overreaching government. So why is he so determined to repeat that here? This is such an interesting story to look at, because when we when we see exactly what's happening with this, it, it raises a lot of questions about exactly where the government wants to go on this, in particular, putting so much power in the Ministry of Justice and Attorney General. And, you know, we know that there's been some discussion about whether or not Attorney General and Minister of Justice should be split apart, because typically in Canadian history, those have been uh, under the under the roof of the same person. And then we get to the questions, of course, the tribunal and realizing the fact that those people on that tribunal are going to be appointed by the government and you know there's a there's a very classic thing that it, when it comes to limiting freedoms and limiting expressions and whatnot the governments of the day in north america and most of the western world will fall back onto the very traditional things as such we're doing it to prevent terrorism and extremism we're doing it to protect the children so to speak and there are and there are legitimately good provisions in parts of this bill that do protect children online who do get incessantly bullied and make it so that there can be uh, a large amount of criminal time for the people that do bully these children and some children uh, do ultimately suffer very horribly from this and something does need to be done in the justice system about this but the question is just where else is this going to be applied is this going to be applied when people start looking online and saying um you know you look at anywhere you look at you look at x you look at facebook you look at reddit you can find huge huge amounts of anti-semitism there uh especially especially after the october 7th attacks in israel and you know the question is are people going to be reporting that and will the government be acting on that will the government or people who are you know watching out for this sort of thing use the same sort of thing to go after the folks that are uh, posting uh, in support of Hamas in terms of wanting uh, to to limit the freedom and ex- effectively exterminate the Jewish people? Will it be used in that regard? And, you know, that's that's where you start to see the true power of this bill. And maybe the government hasn't realized this, but if this bill does come into power, a future government, a conservative government or whatever kind of government it might be, could effectively change out the tribunal and make it so that that tribunal is in inherently focused on attacking a different kind of hate than might have been initially envisioned here. And, you know, we get to the very horrible thing that a lot of people aren't saying with this is that this is the perfect kind of bill in the eyes of uh, many dictators and authoritarians out there that could be used to persecute political opponents. 
Yes, and I think there's a lot that's in the bill that is very wordy. There's a lot of legalese in there that really doesn't really define ex- explicitly what the government considers hate. I mean, it's using a lot of words to say that, well, there's a lot of uh, things that wouldn't be part of this. But really, that's up for the tribunal and the Human Rights Commission and the Digital Safety Commission to decide and whether or not that they can actually order a lot of these social media companies or ISPs to actually police what's actually going on. A lot of these these companies and whatnot will not want to do any of that because they're located in the United States. And a lot of that sort of thing is protected under the first amendment of the U S constitution. So, I mean, this is something that's going to take a lot of uh, people off guard when it actually gets put through parliament. And I think that there's not really been much uh, in the way of real clear media discourse as to what's actually going on with this bill and how it actually applies to Canadians and with specific examples as to what would get punished and what would be okay. So, you know, there's, there's a lot in here that's, that could be uh, misinterpreted by the public. And there's a lot that could also be uh, punished by government that really isn't specifically in this bill. And I think that's something that really comes down to a lot of what the liberal bills have been about, and especially in the past year, is that there's a lot of wiggle room in them that they're allowing themselves a lot more power than what the bill is actually intended to do. And this means that a future government could also act in a way that the bill was not intended to do so. And I think that that's something that should worry a lot of people going into the future, is that not that uh, this shouldn't, uh, as the aim of the bill should be, as trying to curb online hate or promotion of genocide or inciting violence against children, but it could be something else entirely in the future that we don't really know what would happen. And the fact that the ability for house arrest to to be put on someone without them even having committed a crime or even being sentenced to a crime or even being arrested for a crime, you know, that's something that really shouldn't be seen in a first world country like Canada. Yeah, and that's the biggest thing. And that's what the media has missed on this, of course. And when you start and when you start looking at this story, you, you really question you know who whose interests are the are the government looking at in this case and i mean obviously they make the case that they're aiming to protect people and protect minority groups in this whoever those minorities might be and you know we're not necessarily saying that the government wants to target one specific group of the population with this but at the end of the day it's going to come down as to what the tribunal has to say and who is going to be on that panel that's going to be making a lot of these decisions is going to and is going to effectively determine how this thing goes on that but we're going to move on right now talk about alberta but before we do that i'll just take a moment uh to remind our listeners about our patreon page where you can support us monetarily if you so choose to we offer three tiers of support starting for as little as two dollars a month and in doing that you'll be helping us remove bias and sensationalism from the news and media 
for $5 a month, you can continue to help us do that and have your name read out on the podcast if you want. And for $10 a month, you can become a Western Context Insider and gain an insight into our work and gain previous access to our production and show notes throughout the entire week. And we also do have an option to make a one-time contribution as well via PayPal that you can learn more about at westerncontext.ca slash support. Budget week in Alberta this week, and when we when we look at this budget, it's it's an interesting one because the budget is in line with what people were expecting, and that it's a surplus, a three hundred sixty seven million dollars surplus. So a small surplus, not necessarily huge. And when you combine that with accounting decisions, the province will still have to borrow money to pay the bills. Now, of the previous year's six point four billion dollars surplus, the province will put two billion dollars into the heritage savings trust fund, as we talked about last week, and set aside $3.2 billion for debt repayment. Looking at the plan going forward, spending in key ministries like health and education are up and are keeping pace with that marker of inflation plus population growth, but this as a whole doesn't tell the true story of what's going on with the budget. Now, the most interesting decision about this budget is the province's choice to further tie the the financial coffers to the reliance of natural resource revenue. And that's interesting because it was only a week before the budget came out that we had the televised address by Daniel Smith that said that the province had a plan to get off the reliance of natural resources revenue. And we know the province is banking on natural resource revenue more because last year's budget uh, budgeted for a price of $68 per barrel. That would, that would, that the, budget was baked based on and balanced on whereas this year the province will need an average of $73 a barrel to meet the same commitments now of course long term forecasts show that the price of oil can go up and the province will have the ability to reap the benefits from this but when you look at the province wanting to get away from that and putting and and using money from these natural resources in effect uh, to pay for things, that's at odds with what we saw in the televised address last week. Now, overall, compared to previous years' budgets and even the NDP budget from 2018, operating spending is up and higher than forecast, which, of course, is a very interesting thing when you look back at what the Jason Kenney and Travis Hayes budgets looked like from 2019 to 2022. According to calculations that were performed on this budget by UFC economist Trevor Toome, the budget in 2024 sees spending up by roughly $2 billion a year, which again runs counter to the televised address from last week in that it's beyond that inflation plus population growth marker. Now, when we, of course, look back to previous UCP budgets, those both saw operating expenses way lower than we're seeing under the Smith government here, and interestingly enough, if you compare that to the to the NDP's last budget in 2018, operating expenses are now higher than the NDP even forecast back then, which is probably raising the uh, the, the eyebrows of many people who are uh, UCP supporters when you look at that kind of chart. And of course, we know at the end of the day, numbers on their own are innocuous; they don't hurt anybody. So, of course. Uh, many people won't get hurt by that, but it's just interesting seeing that, and it's a little bit stark. Now, the government also provided an update 
on the income tax cut that was campaigned on in last May's election, and it now appears that that cut is now contingent on, as the budget document says, maintaining a sufficient fiscal capacity to introduce the tax cut while maintaining a balanced budget, and the tax cut will not be fully implemented until 2027. The tax cut will be phased in, starting with a new 9% bracket created for 2026, and the 8% tax bracket will be created for the following year, bringing us to the 2027 mark. Now, in response to questioning on the tax cut, Finance Minister Nate Horner said that we're trying to strike the right balance between saving for the future, managing our debt responsibly, and making sure that we have the infrastructure needed for a growing province. Now, as with all things governments do, the interesting part is about what they don't say and what we infer by reading between the lines in this budget. First, By delaying the tax cut, the UCP has gambled that Albertans would rather have the province exercise fiscal restraint and good budgeting with surpluses, invest into the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, hopefully going forward. We saw they invested about uh, $2 billion from last year. We'll have to wait and see if they continue to do that because the budget document itself didn't set up a schedule for investments into that fund. And, of course, many Albertans have known, uh, going back to the Klein years and wore it with a, bret, a, a badge of pride, that at one point the province had no debt. So keeping debt under control is actually more important for some Albertans than actual tax cuts. So that's what the UCP is gambling on, that their supporters, the main supporters in rural Alberta and Calgary, of course, would rather see – sufficient and stable fiscal planning rather than just moving out with a tax cut in front. But, of course, we know that that tax cut was one of the things that was campaigned on, and it was actually what the what the what what Daniel Smith opened the election campaign with on day one was that tax cut. So it's a little bit interesting that we're not seeing it, and we'll just put this aside for a moment as we as we move on to the next thing. And, of course, Tax rates in Alberta are already the lowest in Canada and some of the lowest in North America, but there's always room to move on that. The budget also shows us that the Smith government is breaking the tradition that we talked about many times before here on the on the podcast that the Kenny government did, where they largely kept all their promises and implemented what they campaigned on. And they the previous UCP government did not deviate that much, if at all, from the plan that they put forward in 2019. And we've already seen many instances here where the Smith government is saying one thing and doing a different thing entirely than what they've campaigned on. And, you know, when you when you tee that all up, that it could be what many people were concerned about with Smith. But in this budget and the policies surrounding it, we see these differences and what's being Implemented, And, of course, the, the big ticket items there are chiefly the tax cut, the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, and the new tax on electric vehicles, which has many people raising their eyebrows because going forward, all electric vehicles will have to pay a $200 tax yearly at the time of registration. And the government says that this is for uh, having the electric vehicle owners pay their fair share because they don't pay a fuel tax. So they see this as having those uh, – owners of the electric vehicles pay for road maintenance 
And, you know, they also say, of course, that the electric vehicles are heavier than the cars with the internal combustion engines. But if we look at the roads and see how many trucks are on the road, of course, that's something else that's up for debate. So whether or not this is purely political, that is the EV tax, whether or not that's purely political, that's going to fall on your own view of electric vehicles. And also, taxes are going to be going up on cigarettes, and Alberta will also be joining the existing federal-provincial-coordinated vaping tax framework. Land title fees will also be going up, and the fuel tax relief program that has been talked about many times before that is tied to the price of oil will be codified in the budget. At the end of the day, though, education receives a 4.4% increase in spending, and the health ministry will, will receive an additional $1.1 billion in funding. Health also sees the cancellation of the new South Edmonton Hospital with a commitment to build the new standalone Stollery Children's Hospital. So that's a bit of a mixed bag there. And in general, people were concerned that health and education funding would pause, but that's not the case. And on the whole, the budget, while delivering a surplus, raises a lot of questions about just when the Smith government will enact uh, the plan that was talked about in the live televised address and what exactly the plan is going forward because it seems as though what we got in this budget so far is yes managing the economy so that the so that the budget is balanced and that things are ineffectively going to be done in a fiscally sustainable way but at the same time there's still a lot of outstanding questions about when those commitments specifically that commitment of the in of day one of the election will come to fruition Yes, there's definitely a lot of questions to be raised about this budget, especially from what we had talked about before. Now, of course, when you compare it to the BC budget that was announced last week, uh, there's definitely a lot of changes to it, of course, given that Alberta is still running surpluses and BC is now dragging itself further and further into billions of dollars of debt. But of course, with the Smith government, we're seeing more spending, as you said, than even the NDP's last budget, and of course, more spending than the Kenny government, which had to govern through COVID. And that's something that's really important to note here, because the Kenny government, even throughout the global health emergency that we had that was wreaking havoc across economies across the country, uh, they were still able to keep a lot of their commitments. Now, of course, whether or not you're a Smith supporter is is going to define whether or not you actually want Smith to keep her commitments or not. But it can uh, not be understated enough that uh, there is a point to be made that Smith has really been going off track as to what she said she's going to do. And uh, it's interesting to note just how much spending there is in this budget, considering a lot of people were thinking that she was going to um, cut a lot of health and education funding. But that's really not the case as to what's going on here. So, you know, we'll have to see what the Smith government does in the future, of course, and where exactly a lot of the spending is going to go. But at the end of the day, we're seeing kind of a middle of the road here where they're still committing to the surplus budget, but they're not saving much more than that. And uh, a lot of spending is going on different things. And we're going to have to find out exactly if the government is uh, spending the money that they feel is going to get the best bang for their buck, or if it's just going to be more money going into government services and whether or not that's actually going to see its self trickle down uh, to Alberta citizens in general. 
Yeah, and of course the biggest thing will be, you know, getting something on the map definitively about when that tax cut is going to come because, you know, the very fact the finance minister has said the word contingent, the very fact it says contingent in the budget document is something that a lot of people are raising their eyebrows about here. And, you know, we you can you can split your peas and you can have your peas and, you know, you might have your carrots as well. And, you know, some people don't like peas at the end of the day. And that's the way this budget's going to be for a lot of people in terms of in terms of how they're looking at it. But the biggest thing, of course, is that is that tax cut. And, you know, it, it goes without saying that the NDP wanted more spending here. The very fact is that this is a very different budget as well from the David Eby budget in BC, and it's also a very different budget from the uh, Kenny government as well on that. But it all comes down to that to that tax cut that was promised to Albertans at the end of the day. And if the, and if there was some clear commitment on when that was going to arrive or if it was going to be now, then I think a lot of people would be able to look at this budget a little bit differently and say, "Aha! At least things are moving forward." in that direction. And until that does, we're going to have to uh, raise some more questions and hope for some clarification along the way. And clarification is where we go uh, for our next story, because, of course, last week we talked about the new National Pharmacare program, but we're learning now that it's not necessarily going to be comprehensive pharmacare. Yes. And as we covered last week, the Liberals and NDP reached a deal on National Pharmacare, as they call it, ensuring that Trudeau will likely govern until the next scheduled election in October of 2025, which if you're uh, not a big fan of the Trudeau Liberal government right now, will be a very long time away. It's going to be over a year and a half at this point. And if this Liberal NDP deal continues, it's going to be a while before we actually get to give them either another mandate or to replace them with someone else entirely. Now, what we didn't know at the time of covering this story last week was that the pharmacare bill does not really cover very much in the way of pharmacare, only some diabetes medication and treatments, as well as some contraceptives. And even with the newly updated reporting on this, there is really not that much that has been talked about in the way that it is just some of each of those two things. Now, Canada is the only developed country with universal universal insurance for hospital and physician services, but not for prescription drugs. So covering this third pillar of the system seems to make sense to some people, but whether this agreement will do that in a sensible way isn't really clear, because according to news reports, the negotiations hinged on two main points, and what's in, and who pays. Now, the NDP, of course, wanted more drug categories included, while the Liberals were concerned about costs, which is quite funny, considering how much they've plunged this country into debt. Now, the NDP, of course, wanted a single-payer national program, which basically means that just the government would be paying for it, rather than private insurance, public insurance, or people paying out of pocket. And, but the Liberals, of course, never committed to that, and no information has yet been made available about the plans for financing that system. So in the end, it seems that neither party got what it wanted, because the plan will only cover some contraceptives and some diabetes medications and will reportedly cost the taxpayers an additional $800 million. 
Now, governments, of course, need to level with Canadians on how these two treatment categories were selected and how new ones will be chosen in the future, because improving access to medication for Canadians is important, but of course, so are sustainable federal finances, and the two have to be balanced. And, you know, that's something that the balance hasn't really happened in Canada under this Trudeau government, because not only have we not gotten medication covered over the tenure of Trudeau, but also the finances of the country have been, you know, I think we could, it's fair to say at this point unequivocally that they are the worst they have ever been. So the two, of course, have to be balanced, but whether a treatment is covered needs to consider as transparently as possible how well it works, how many people it will cover, and how their eligibility is determined. And last but not certainly not least, it's cost. Now, no plan can cover everything because diabetes management and birth control are obviously both important, but are they more important than heart disease, cancer, or mental health? Of course, uh, heart diseases and cancer are some of the biggest killers of Canadians uh, over the past couple decades, of, of course. And a lot of people do have diabetes and a lot of people do use birth control, but are they more important than other things? Because if you cover one drug or treatment, another won't be covered. And there's only certain things um, to manage diabetes that will be covered in this. Now, in public plans in 2021, five of the top prescribed drugs by spending were for diabetes. Now, about $1.37 billion of that of those plans helped 1.52 million beneficiaries. Now, by contrast, the top 10 non-diabetes drugs by number of beneficiaries cost public drug plans $1.54 billion, which is roughly the same amount, but also involved up to 19.02 million beneficiaries, which is about 15 times as many people as the diabetes drugs. Now, the top 50 drugs prescribed to people in the lowest income quintile, where affordability challenges presumably are greatest, led to $1.02 billion in spending and brought in up to 7.42 million beneficiaries. So this is not to say that diabetes drugs and contraceptives are the wrong things to cover, simply to show that the same dollars could provide different populations with different treatments. And Canadians do need to be told how coverage decisions were arrived at. Now, though the Liberals and the NDP have got themselves the deal, the problem of how to decide what's covered and who pays still remains. And to ensure that National Pharmacare can address the unmet needs of Canadians both now and then in the future, any new system has to be built on a strong foundation of sustainability in finance as well as transparency in writing the floor formula. Now, though the cornerstone is about to be laid, we still don't have blueprints for what's to come. Now, the government says that one in four Canadians with diabetes, which is about 3.7 million people in Canada that have the condition, have reported that they're not following their treatment plans due to the cost. Now, the farmer care plan will give the 9 million Canadians of reproductive age better access to contraception to ensure reproductive autonomy, reducing the risk of unintended pregnancies, and improving their ability to plan for the future. Now, this is according to the government. Now, of course, they're they're talking about the uh, numbers saying that there's going to be a great number of people affected by this. But, you know, as we said, only one in four of the people that have diabetes, about 3.7 million, which roughly equates to about 900,000, are the ones that are having trouble. So that, I mean, that's 
when you look at it, that's about 2% of the population or even less than that, uh, that are actually going to be uh, affected by this. And of course, they're talking about the 9 million Canadians of reproductive age, but of course, not everybody of reproductive age acts, uh, accesses contraception or uses it or needs to. So there's a lot of people that aren't going to be accessing the plan that it's going to be spending the money on. And the government is saying that it's going to help quite a few people, but it's not really going to be helping quite as many as they say. Now, this is the first step in could what could be a more robust regime in the years ahead, though its future is uncertain because already some provinces like Alberta and Quebec, which could be considered the two most troubling provinces to the federal government, they're already demanding the chance to opt out of the federal program or are rebuffing Ottawa's efforts entirely. Now, the federal government says that beyond diabetes treatments and contraception, it's it tends to eventually implement more coverage for other medications, but so far it is yet to say anything on future plans. And given that the fact that they've been in power for almost 10 years now, and this is the only first step that they've actually done to put forward a national pharmacare bill, just shows that they weren't planning on doing it in the first place unless they had to rely on the NDP for future votes in Parliament to keep their government going. Now, the parliamentary budget officer has paid the cost of a single-payer program for all medications at nearly $40 billion a year, which is obviously something that the federal government could not afford since it's already spent way too much money on other things that don't actually benefit Canadians as much as they should. But the idea that it's an all-encompassing national pharmacare plan is peddled by the media last week when really it's only some diabetes medication and some contraceptives has really set the tone for how the public views this policy, whether it's successful or not, and whether or not it actually spends all the money that it's going to, or whether it is going to cost way more than it's than the government says it's going to, or whether or not it actually helps as many people as the government claims it's going to. So there's still a lot of unanswered questions about this, but there's definitely enough here that we d- felt it deserved a follow-up in talking about how a lot of the media misconceptions out there this past week really shaped how the public was actually looking at this strategy and whether or not it's actually going to succeed. Yeah, and that's the biggest thing. And of course, we came into the story saying National Pharmacare, $40 billion as the price, and we now know it's only a handful of medications out there. And, you know, seemingly even even the NDP leader himself, Jagmeet Singh, is okay with this because he was asked about this in terms of, you know, when are the other medications going to come? And his his response, quite honestly, to this was a weird one, given the fact we're likely at this point more than a year out from the election. His response was that if people want more medication covered by a, a national pharmacare plan, in quotes, yeah, a national pharmacare plan, even though it's only a few drugs right now, they'll need to elect more NDP MPs. And that was the answer to that question about whether or not uh, there was going to be more associated with this. It was elect more NDP MPs, and that was a little bit of a weird response to see because it is his party who is keeping the Trudeau government in power. And the longer he does that, as we have talked about time and time again on the podcast, it damages his ability to get those seats and, you know, see results at the end of the day because he just becomes closer and closer to Trudeau until the time that there's really no differences between them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the NDP has been championing uh, that they've been the ones fighting for this. And the fact that 
the liberals would never, of course, uh, pass this by themselves if they were left to their own devices, which, of course, is true because the liberals have not passed this in the nine years that they've been in power before this. But the fact that they're willing to settle for so little in this bill that they're only covering some diabetes medication and some contraceptives, which I keep repeating because it bears repeating because no one else is really saying that it's not even covering all diabetes medication or all contraceptives. It's really just some and only for certain people. It's going to be a lot of money being spent on a very niche um, set of circumstances for people in Canada. And I think that that's something that a lot of the media coverage really just left out in the first initial week because a lot of people didn't really know exactly what was going to be covered. But now we know it's just a very limited amount. And this is what the NDP is saying is acceptable for going in the future because they say, well, if you want to have more drugs covered, then you'll have to elect Jagmeet Singh as prime minister and more NDP MPs. And of course, that's not something that's going to likely happen. And so we're going to have to see going into the future exactly how much of this money is actually going to be spent and how where it's actually going to and whether or not Canadians are actually getting good value for that money or not. And uh, why exactly it's these two particular things that were landed on in the deal and why not other other things that are far more deadly and uh you know there's still a lot of questions about the story even though we're doing a follow-up a week later with more answers as to what's going on so we're gonna have to keep looking at it and see exactly how this is going forward because of course canada is so far into debt from this trudeau government that there's really no extra wiggle room financially for a bigger more comprehensive system that people have been wanting for quite some time now so we're gonna have to see going forward whether or not this will actually benefit canadians or if as the stats from previous years show it's really just helping a very few amount of people yeah and you know the ndp gives their support and they give their support to continue on into 2025 likely at this rate when we now know that there has been a major transgression at the top when it comes to Canada's national security, again, when it comes to China. Now, this week, documents pertaining to the termination of two Chinese nationals at Canada's highly, highly high-security infectious disease laboratory in Winnipeg have been made public. Now, Cheng Wo Chu and her husband, Keting Cheng, provided confidential information to China and then were fired when a security probe determined that the woman posed a, quote, realistic and credible threat to Canada's economic security. Now, the documents also reveal that these two were engaged in clandestine meetings with Chinese officials. Dr. Chu, when interviewed, repeatedly lied to CSIS and refused to admit any knowledge with programs that were tied to the People's Republic of China. And these two were then escorted out of the National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg in July of 2019. And then it takes until early 2021 where we started hearing rumblings that something might have happened there, but the documents were hard to come by. The Liberal government dragged their heels to the point that the opposition had to declare the Liberal government in contempt of Parliament and was actually in the process of suing the Speaker of the House to gain access to the documents, but then the 2021 election happened. 
Now we, you know, Justin Trudeau at the time said that the that he needed a mandate to continue on with what was happening at the time, even though the pandemic was moving into the rearview mirror. Of course, many people, including this podcast, declared the pandemic over in early 2022, and at that point in time. Justin Trudeau tried to get another majority, got exactly the same results as 2019. And, you know, he said it was to deal with the COVID pandemic. But what likely happened there now, looking at how these documents have been released, is that the whole purpose of having that election was likely to shut down the investigations into this case. Because when that election happened, all investigations that were happening in the House of Commons ended, and even the legal case against the Speaker of the House ended as well. Now, with all the information we have now, it's fair to say that part of the reason that the election was called was to stop these allegations in this report from becoming public, and they're damning, and we're going to get to them just in a moment. The Public Health Agency of Canada also appears to be complicit in the cover-up so far that they have not addressed the issue of the two scientists, but instead have chosen to focus on the security changes that they have made since 2019. And, of course, we need to say that security changes being made should be the least that's being done. The lab in question has access to some of the most deadly pathogens in the world, including Ebola, Lassa fever, and Rift Valley fever. And, you know, many people have only heard of Ebola, but the other two are very, very deadly. Now, Dr. Chu was involved with multiple Chinese talent programs, as the report says, and those programs were run by the Chinese government with the aim to boost China's national technological capabilities, which may pose a serious threat to research institutions, including government research facilities. And here's where the damning part comes by incentivizing economic espionage and the theft of intellectual property. And we question, okay, well, what exactly was Chu doing in Canada? Well, Dr. Chu was Canada's head of pathogens, and it turns out that she was working with the People's Liberation Army and granted access, actually, to a person from the People's Liberation Army to that exact lab. According to the documents, the reports also found that Dr. Chu represented a very serious and credible danger to the government of Canada as a whole, and in particular at facilities considered high security due to the potential for theft of dangerous materials attractive to terrorist and foreign entities that conduct espionage to infiltrate and damage the economic security of Canada. And when you take a step back and you realize what exactly the government had granted here and how highly the Chinese Communist Party was able to infiltrate the government of Canada, you see that we have a whole suite of problems here, not only with this story, but with all the other cases of China interfering in Canada from elections to the real estate market and so on and so forth. The documents also describe Dr. Chu as a top-noted virologist at the Academy of Military Medical Science Scientists and is China's biological defense expert in research related to biosafety, biodefense, and bioterrorism. And we're effectively building a whole house of cards here and saying 
that this person that Canada thought that they had a person who was highly accomplished in China to run this program in Winnipeg was effectively here, a double agent, both working for Canada at the front, but also working for communist China. Now, conservative leader Pierre Polyev called for there to be no collaboration between the lab's infectious disease scientists in China going forward. He said, I don't think this is the kind of collaboration we want. We should be collaborating with like-minded democracies that we can trust, not those that want to attack our interests. And then when we look at what's been happening, the way Pierre Polyev has teed this up, that's exactly what China has been doing with Canada, and Canada has been an accomplice that has been enabled by China. The CSIS investigation also somehow managed to determine that Dr. Chu led a project at the Wuhan Virology Institute that assessed cross-species infection and pathologic risks of phyloviruses, which on the whole suggests that gain-of-function studies were taking place. And this is the part that really kicks the story into the stratosphere on this, because there was this whole discussion that happened in the U.S. about gain-of-function. And I'll explain what gain-of-function is first. Gain-of-function studies are research that improve the ability of a pathogen to cause disease in order to help define the fundamental nature of human-pathogen interaction. So it's done effectively. They soup up a pathogen and they infect a test species with it like a rat or a mouse, and then they study with that how that might affect humans going forward. And they do that to have that better understanding and maybe to learn how to make a vaccine in the process. So what this means is that the lab, like the Wuhan Virology Institute, takes an already existing natural virus, combines it with another virus, makes it more virulent in the hopes that it will lead to some scientific progress. And the entire specter of gain of function was something that was deemed as a conspiracy theory by the media by social media, by the U.S. government, and even the FBI. And now it appears as though that the Wuhan Virology Institute was engaged in this work, and one of their researchers who was doing that had access to Canadian materials. This is a massive security breach for Canada, and we've only just seen the tip of the iceberg on it. There's over 600 pages of released documents that are now public. They're linked in the show notes at westerncontext.ca. And this is proving to be one of the biggest lapses in national security judgment by the Trudeau government that we have ever seen. And it's a big one and has ramifications for the entire world because this may have indirectly blown the lid off the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Going forward, there's going to be more questions that are going to be asked about how these people were granted their clearances, why they were working in, in Canada, what government officials knew, what cabinet knew, and of course, for people who haven't connected the dots yet, what this means for the origins of COVID-19. Because when there were other viruses out there like SARS and MERS and whatnot, it was pretty easy to find the inter intermediary species. Nobody has yet found that intermediary species for COVID-19, and that has furthered the theory, a theory that was published last year in the Wall Street Journal and backed up by a number of American three-letter institutions that there's a non-zero chance that COVID-19 was lab-made. And this in this way, kind of pushes Canada in this direction as well. And as for what the government has done this week in the aftermath of this, they have just stopped sharing dangerous pathogens with China, but some research and collaboration is still continuing. And as such, 
As I mentioned, this is just the tip of the iceberg, and we have no idea what's going to happen next on this. Getting to the bottom of this story will take months, if not years, and we're likely not to know the full ramifications of this until after the next election. Yes, and I think with with this, there's a lot of questions that remain to be answered as to the government's response to these Winnipeg lab leaks and the fact that you know these people were only fired and not arrested or you know put on trial uh really really kind of underscores the secrecy as to the whole case and to whether or not the government was just trying to get them to leave quietly head back to China so that nobody would actually know as to what actually happened in it it uh, does raise a lot of eyebrows as to what actually they could be hiding. Now, of course, we know that even though Trudeau promised back in 2015 that his government would be the most transparent government ever seen, we've seen that in practice that is likely uh, to have been the complete opposite, where it's actually been one of the most secretive governments that Canada has ever seen. And even in the, even in the digital age, uh, with a lot of things being known ahead of time, that's really quite a feat, considering that there's so much of the story that we didn't know at the time, even though we covered it. Uh, and there's so much that we still don't know, even uh, even about three years later, where there's just so many different details of the story that have now surfaced uh, because of these released documents. And there's so much that we don't know as to what actually went on. We don't know where these scientists are whether or not they're still in Canada or if they're back in China or elsewhere, uh, what exactly they were working on, and what, if anything, it had to do with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and whether or not this had anything to do with the origins of COVID. Could Canada and the Canadian government be implicated in the origins of COVID? And that's a lot of questions that people are going to have from looking at this. And uh, it's something it's something that uh, is very serious and is not something that should be taken lightly. And as you said, this is something that was happening uh, during the 2021 election period and that Trudeau likely called it just to stifle any other investigation into what actually happened. Because as we saw with the previous liberal governments, uh, with things like the sponsorship scandal, they had issues with uh, public perception as to their uh, government, and they knew that if uh, an election happened after this investigation was concluded and all of the information was out there, they likely wouldn't get reelected. So they called it before that could happen, made sure that any investigation was stifled, made sure that the media didn't get any information as to what was going on, made sure that the government agencies did not report on what was happening, and Therefore, we got an election where likely were very much the same result happened as to 2019 because no one was the wiser as to what was going on. And at that time, it seemed like the public was very, um, very willing to just let the Trudeau government continue managing the country's finances during COVID. And of course, a couple of years later, we've now seen that that was likely the wrong move to do because, of course, there has been a lot of COVID funding that has been unaccounted for, uh, billions upon billions of dollars that we just do not know where it went to. And, uh, you know, there's so many questions with this story that just have not been answered yet, even though we still have we we have updates as to what was actually going on. As you said, 
the getting to the bottom of the story will probably not happen until after the next election and the results change. Yeah, and you know, when we when we look at this, it's something that Canada needs to deal with and we need to have a full understanding of what's happening here in the country for our own sake. But we also need to get the Americans on this because there's lots of independent researchers at the universities that would like to know exactly what's happening with gain of function because there has been a lot of discussion about whether or not gain of function is something that should even be done in the U.S. and whether there should be money going to it and the very fact that Canada now has some ties to this with one of the researchers that can raise eyebrows for a lot of people and there's also probably lots of questions in the american three-letter agencies about what this means for canada's national security both on the covid front but just in general in terms of the bigger uh security alliances out there like our bilateral alliance with the u.s norad and of course what happens with the five eyes and nato and whatnot going forward so it's very important that canada be 100 percent honest with this and we get some perspective on what the americans think in terms of just how just how bad this is and how bad they've been compromised or rather we've been compromised and if they know anything uh, that we don't on this. But with that, we're going to move on to our word of the week now. Yes, and honesty is quite honestly a important word for that because it really shows uh, what the government needs to do. And our word of the week this week is pharmacare, which... Uh, refers to that honesty because pharmacare is defined as a uniquely Canadian word referring to a proposal for a government-funded insurance program for medications. Now, of course, with pharmacare, we haven't really seen much honesty as to what the government is actually going to cover, how many people it's going to cover, and how much it's going to cost, and who is going to be paying for it, and how much we're paying for it. And there's a lot of, of course, in the week uh, this week that we haven't really been able to fully discuss because there's so much that we don't know. And I think with the Pharmacare program, with the introduction of it last week that we saw, and uh, of course the week before, a lot of media talking about it as to what it would cover, referring to it as a national Pharmacare plan, but in the end really only covering two, uh, two uh, very small sets of medications for people. And I think that there's a lot of disappointment uh, surrounding that uh, on both sides of the aisle. There's a lot of people on the left wanting there to have been more coverage. And of course, a lot of people on the right saying, well, this is what's going to keep Trudeau in power for another year and a half. Uh, you know, there's uh, a lot going around this week that has really, um, that there's a lot that we don't know, but there, this is something that we do know and that this is something that the, NDP had campaigned on and that they wanted the liberals to do and well they got part of what they wanted and because of that they're going to keep the Trudeau government in power so going forward we'll have to see how this pharmacare plan actually works and of course how Canadians are going to benefit from it or if they're not going to benefit too much at all. Yeah, or even even if it comes to fruition and we need to, you know, in effect, redefine uh, what pharmacare is. And it's important that we do have that uh, definition so Canadians uh, have, a, have a full picture and know that it's not just, you know, one or two classes of medication 
out there. But that brings us to the end of the program for this week on Western Context. If you want full show notes, as I mentioned, anything related to the Winnipeg Lab, Pharmacare, the Alberta budget or the online hate bill, all of that and more can be found at westerncontext.ca. You can also subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast listener out there. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Pocket Casts, and more. Just visit westerncontext.ca slash subscribe. And of course, we're also on X and Facebook at Western Context. And with that being said, we'll be back next week for another episode of Western Context. I'll be sure to look through all the stories that the mainstream media talks about and a lot that they don't talk about in uncovering what the news is of the week and how it matters to Canadians. Now, we'll do this whether the stories are found in radio, TV, print, or online. We will find them and we'll give you the context needed to put yourselves on the right side of the news. So with that said, we'll be back next week for another episode of Western Context. Western Context.